Good morning. I'm going to get something here. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you want to raise your hand and um, the guys will get one to you if you need one. If you have a Bible, uh, you can begin turning to Acts chapter 11. We're continuing in the book of Acts series. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. It's pretty clear from our study in the book of Acts that uh, persecution was God's fire alarm. Does it sound familiar to you now after last week? (laughs) It was uh, God's fire alarm to uh, drive the people out of Jerusalem to safety in other places, to spread the gospel. Here, Luke says that some were scattered 125 miles north to Phoenicia. Um, That's right up in that area in Lebanon. Others were scattered from around Jerusalem down here to the island of Cyprus, about 250 miles away. But others were scattered 300 miles away up to just the bottom of what is present-day Turkey right now, right in that area called the city of Antioch. And that last group is our focus this morning, Antioch. Well, when they arrived there, Luke tells us that they preached only to the Jews, um, until some folks from Cyprus and Cyrene came and began sharing Christ with the Greeks, the Gentiles in Antioch. And the response was so great uh, that the church leaders in Jerusalem got just a bit edgy about all of these Gentiles coming into the church. So they sent Barnabas up there to check it out to make sure that things weren't going off the rails too badly. Well, this morning, I want to deal with five questions about the nine-word statement at the end of this passage in verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Five questions are, where were they first called Christians? Who were first called Christians? When were they first called Christians? Why were they first called Christians? And finally, what does being called Christian mean? Five questions, half an hour each ought to do it. Pizza after question two, are we good? First, where were they first called Christians? Obviously, it's Antioch. In the popularity contest of uh, biblical cities, and I'm just having a little trouble with this thing staying in the right place, so just don't pay attention to me as I fix it. Um, I think Antioch has gotten the short end of the stick, probably for two reasons. Uh, It's obviously, and and rightly so, uh, a bridesmaid for Jerusalem, 
that, that makes sense. Um, but then there's also nothing from Paul called first and second Antioch. So they just don't get any recognition. But it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind only Roman Alexandria. And in the history of the gospel, I want to use the word critical. It was, it was crucial. Antioch was the first city in which Gentiles became a force in the church. Listen again to those verses. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews at first. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, Steve's message last week was, uh, I don't know about you, but it was really powerful for me. Uh, but at one point, he called his passage a turning point. Uh-uh. Uh, if his was a turning point, my passage this morning is the turning point of his turning point, <laughs> which makes mine the turning point. <laughs> and you know, I think Steve knew that. In fact, to beef up his claim for the excitement of his passage, he had to stage a fake fire drill to get us, to get us going. It was actually his son who pulled the thing, you know, to get... No, it wasn't. I know, I know it wasn't. <laughs> you didn't know preaching was such a competitive sport, did you? I hope you know I'm kidding. But here's my point. According to Acts 1.8, the goal, after the day we're celebrating today of Pentecost, the goal was for the gospel to get from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth, from Jews only to Jews to Gentiles also. Not Gentiles instead of Jews, but Gentiles also. And it took three steps. The first step was it had to get out of Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria, and Philip did that. But the Samaritans were still half Jews. So we're still not getting purebred Gentiles. Second, as Steve described very well last week. Peter went to Cornelius, a Gentile, but Cornelius had taken the initiative to hear the gospel. In fact, God had to argue with Peter, the Jew, to get him to go to Cornelius, the Gentile. Plus, Cornelius was a God-fearer, so he was on the fringes of the Jewish faith already. But the third step in Antioch, this passage today, the church didn't wait for an invitation but for the first time, the church went to the Gentiles, and the gospel was catapulted into its now 20 centuries long of, and counting of global mission. And it, yeah, that's us, most of us. And in fact, Paul will eventually launch all three of his missionary journeys, not from Jerusalem, but from this city of Antioch. So it's, a, it's an unknown, but it's an indispensable place in God's plan for bringing his redeeming gospel to the world, including Roswell, Georgia. Second question, who were first called Christians? And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, prior to this, Luke had called them disciples, brothers, saints, uh, those who had believed. Uh, but then in 44 AD, when this takes place, they were called Christians, and that... That name has stuck for 1,974 years. And we're going to see in a few minutes that going from disciple to Christian was, was not an upgrade, you know, like going from coach to first class. 
but it is importantly different. Third question. See how we're going to be able to get five done to go very rapid. When were they first called Christians? As I said, it was 44 AD. But what happened in 43 AD is very important in answering the when question. Remember the sequence. When folks came from Cyprus and Cyrene, they began sharing the gospel with the Greeks, and it caught on like wildfire. That sort of yanked the chain of the Jewish church leaders in Jerusalem. Now, they had heard about what Steve talked about last week. They had heard about Cornelius from Peter. And their response was, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Wow. But that was one man and his household, not a whole city. It was Caesarea, only 70 miles away, still in Judea, not 300 miles away in Syria. So they sent Barnabas to check it out, and he was so thrilled with what he found that all he did was fan the flames even more to the point where he couldn't any longer handle the ministry by himself. So in 43 AD, he remembered Paul, whom he had befriended before, and he traveled over 100 miles to Tarsus to recruit him to pack up his tent, move to Antioch, and to help with this burgeoning ministry. Paul bought in, and we read this. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So when were they first called Christians? One year after Paul arrived in Antioch. And that's our transition to the fourth question. Why were they first called Christians? Now, at this time, Paul had been in Tarsus for 10 years when Barnabas recruited him. And from what we know about Paul, it's, it's hard to imagine that he was just sort of chilling out there waiting for God to remember the whole Damascus Road thing, you know, and call him to something important. Paul wasn't exactly a bull in a china shop, but he was pretty bullish, especially about Jesus. So just chilling out doesn't fit his M.O., Listen to these words from Acts 9, and it's kind of a lengthy passage, but listen to these words from Acts 9 about Paul very soon after his conversion. For some days, he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, encourager encourager Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
He was just too hot to handle in Jerusalem. But he had had a taste of going head to head with people about the gospel. And I just can't imagine him sitting in Tarsus for 10 years with one foot on the gas pedal, revving the engine, and another on the brake, just kind of waiting. Now, we don't know exactly what he did for those 10 years, but we have hints. In his second letter to Corinth, he mentions three shipwrecks, five Jewish scourgings, three Roman beatings, and one stoning. And only the one stoning and one beating are recorded in the book of Acts. And most scholars believe that all of those other things occurred during his Tarsus years because he was just... He was just being Paul. He was preaching the gospel regardless of what it cost him. Uh, Commentator Lloyd Ogilvie suggests that during these years, quote, the Lord was reshaping a living man into his own image. Paul's intellect was reoriented around the triumphant truth that Jesus was the Christ. His emotions were being refashioned around the person of Christ, and his will was refined to do the will of Christ. See, it was here, I believe, that, that he was Jesus sculpted to later be able to say to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ. And to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ogilvy goes on to say this, to be in Christ meant everything to him. Christ was leader and Lord, master and king. Paul talked Christ, lived Christ, and preached Christ. The living Lord was more real to him than the air he breathed. So... When he got to Antioch, he had one message. Christ. Only Christ. And when it came time for the uh, Antiochians, I think that's a word. When it came time for the Antiochians to, uh, to give this group who were following Christ a name, it was a no-brainer. Christ was the name on everyone's lips. So they called them Christians, Christians. Which brings us to the last question. What does being called Christian mean? Before we move on, don't, don't miss um, some divine irony here. Those whom Paul had persecuted and caused to run for their lives to Antioch became the very people who prepared a city and a people for him to preach the gospel to, and then prepared a city from which he would start all of his missionary journeys. In irony like that, only God. Only God. But now, what does Christian mean? Now, obviously, Christ is not his name. It's a title, but he is called Christ Jesus. The title, he means the anointed one, the Messiah. So it's Christ Jesus, or we say Jesus Christ. And many of us just, just call him Christ at times. But the I-A-N on the end of a word like that means belonging to the party of, a partisan of, 
or a follower of. So just like Herodians were followers of and belonged to the party of Herod, Christians were and are followers of Christ. Now earlier I said this, this wasn't an upgrade on the term disciple because that's what a disciple is, right? Um, in those days it was a follower of a certain rabbi. Uh, today it's a follower of a certain spiritual guru of some kind or maybe a business mentor. Um, you follow them, but the term Christian instantly identifies you as a particular disciple, a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ. To just say, I'm a disciple or I'm a believer tells nobody nothing. A disciple of whom? A, a, a believer in whom or in what? But to say, I'm a Christian, says it all. No explanation needed. Now, we're not entirely sure who gave those early believers in Christ the name Christian, but it was most likely the, the citizens or the leaders of the city. See, the, the population of Antioch at that time was half a million, 500,000 people, and very diverse, large colonies of Jews, Greeks, Romans, even Orientals from Persia, India, and, and China at that time. Antioch was actually referred to as all the world in one city. And it was designed like most cities of the day. There was this circular wall around the outside. In the middle, right in the center, was a marketplace. And then in the other parts of the city, of the interior, the city was walled so as to divide off uh, these different people groups from each other. So if you were a Jew, you lived here. A Greek, you, you lived here. It, it kind of reminds me of my hometown, Chicago, except we didn't have walls. Uh, but we had special sections for the, the Jews, the Chinese, the Poles, the Germans, the Italians, the Greeks. Even when we still go to Chicago now, we still go down to Greek town to get baklava. I mean, what else are you going to do? You know? And of course, the most important section, the Dutch. Uh, <laughs> but, now, but now in Antioch, enter the gospel. And all of a sudden, those barriers are dissolving. People from all of these different enclaves are coming together because of their belief in a person, the Christ, Jesus Christ. Community was being radically redefined, and it needed a name. Now, since the people of Antioch were famous for humorous nicknames, which they were, um, it could have been out of jest. Uh, after the bearded emperor, Julian, visited them, they christened him the goat. But um, whether it's out of jest, whether it was out of derision or seriousness, the term Christian fit the bill. Christ followers, no matter what your heritage was. Interestingly, even, uh, even though the early church was, you probably know this, was sort, of, was sort of lumped in as an offshoot of Judaism because that's where it started. Uh, and there were many offshoots of Judaism, by the way. Within Judaism, there, there were all kinds of different, different, different groups believed just a little bit differently. But this was the only offshoot of Jerusalem that was singled out as different enough to need a separate name. There was just something very unique about them. And here's something else. The citizens worshipped Daphne, whose, whose temple stood about five miles outside of Antioch and housed numerous prostitute priestesses. Legend has it that Apollo fell in love with Daphne and chased her all around the laurel groves, and um, that's where the temple eventually stood. So because of that, during Paul's time, the citizens of Antioch would reenact that chase through the laurel groves day and night 
by the worshipers as they traced, chased after these ritual prostitute priestesses ending in sexual debauchery. The phrase, the morals of Daphne, was used throughout the world to describe runaway immorality. So when these believers in Christ stood out and didn't indulge their sexual appetites in that way, they got singled out with a name that has stood the test of almost 20 centuries, in spite of being a name of reproach for almost all of those years. And over the centuries, uh, we Christians haven't helped the cause. The atrocities and the hypocrisies committed under the banner of Christianity, including today, have been nothing less than atrocious. In our culture today, it's a term of derision, for sure. Own up to the name and you're thought to be either a bigot, a homophobe, or a hypocrite of some kind. I think what's happening today is many Christians, as a result of that, are avoiding the word Christian, the name Christian. And instead, they'll say, oh, oh I'm a Baptist, or oh, I'm a Presbyterian, oh, or I'm an independent. I go to Roswell Community Church. Regardless, regardless, it is the most honorable name that can be conferred on any human being. One writer of years past said it this way. This is a rather lengthy quote, and it's dated. You'll tell by some of the words, but it's phenomenal. It suggests, that is the name Christian, it suggests that once to a Christian, the name of his great Redeemer, the idea of our intimate relation to him and the thought that we receive him as our chosen leader, the source of our blessings, the author of our salvation, the, founda- the fountain of our joys. It is the distinguishing name of all the redeemed, It is not that we belong to this or that denomination. It is not that our names are connected with high and illustrious ancestors. It is not that they are recorded in the books of heraldry. It is not that they stand high in courts and among the frivolous, the fashionable, and the rich that true honor is conferred upon men. These are not the things that give distinction and specialty to the followers of the Redeemer. It is that they are Christians. This is their special name. By this they are known. This at once suggests their character, their feelings, their doctrines, their hopes, their joys. This binds them all together, a name which rises above every other appellation, which unites in one the inhabitants of distant nations and tribes of men, which connects the extremes of society and places them in most important respects on a common level, and which is a bond to unite in one family all those who love the Lord Jesus, though though dwelling in different climes, speaking different languages, engaged in different pursuits of life, and occupying distant graves at death. He who lives according to the import of this name is the most blessed and eminent of mortals. This name shall be had in remembrance when the names of royalty shall be remembered no more. And when the appellations of nobility shall cease to amuse or to dazzle the world. And this is where it gets really personal for me. A few months back, I was uh, in my truck driving uh, and thinking about life after death, um, new heavens and the new earth, uh, seeing Jesus. And, and by the way, that happens when you're playing out the 
eighth decade of your life, you start to think more about that sort of thing, just wait, it's coming. And I was picturing myself meeting Jesus, and I realized that I was feeling profoundly embarrassed. It was like I was thinking to myself, I was saying, here I am finally meeting you face to face, and I am so sad that I don't know you better than I do. That was a defining moment for me. See, every day in my life is a possibility for me to know Jesus better, to to dig more deeply in what it means to wear that name, Christian, Christian, a follower of Christ. See, when we follow someone, like like a mentor, we want to know that person as well as we can, and we want to learn from that person all that he or she has to teach us. And in the case of Jesus, we want that knowing of him and that learning from him to slowly but progressively make us more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, as I've said before, is my favorite verse. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, Jesus, from one degree degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I'm sure if we were informal enough here, that some of you would want to shout out a question to me, and it would be something like this. So what are you doing about your potential embarrassment as long as you still have time to do something about it? Well, here's what I am doing. Uh, and I'm not claiming it's good for you or would fit you. We're just, we're just all so different. But the Father has given us four biographies of his son, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they show his humanity more than they show his deity. I am so thankful that God determined from eternity past to add true humanity to his true deity. Because as I study the life of Jesus and I, I, I want to identify with it, I get humanity. I don't get deity. I don't know about you, but I, I don't get it. So I'm reading through each of his biographies, and I'm recording every response I find to Jesus. John the Baptist, the disciples, the crowds, those with a particular need, the Jewish leaders, anyone, uh, even his mother and his heavenly father. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the father's response to his, to his son, to Jesus. Then after that, and that's taken a while, but after that, I, I want to go back and I want to isolate what it is that Jesus said and did that elicited each of those responses. And then I want to see how he responded to each of those responses. Because I'm sure that there will be other steps after that. But as I do this, I'm praying, I'm meditating, I'm asking God questions. I'm, I'm wondering, okay, what, how, how, how would I have responded in that kind of a situation? And I'm sure your next question would be, well, how's it going for you? You know, what are you experiencing? As I immerse myself in his words and his actions and his attitudes and his way of responding to life and people around him and his interaction with his heavenly father, all of that, I'm finding that my special name as Christian, which means a follower of this one I'm studying, is an incalculable mother load of pure golf, gold. I, I just, it just, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as to what it means to be a Christian, to be following Jesus Christ. 
And that just makes me want to follow him more and more closely as my savior, as my friend, which is a cool thing, uh, as my brother, and also as my master, as my Lord. Because in reality, that's how I first met him. I met him as a new master who freed me from bondage to the old master. And the same was true of you. Before that meeting, we were in prison, behind bars, enslaved to Satan, enslaved to sin, and enslaved to death. We were helpless and hopeless. Because remember, prisoners have no keys. There's no way we could unlock the door to get out of that prison. We were stuck. And we needed someone to come and insert the key of life and death into that lock and lead us out of death into life and to transfer at that moment our allegiance from the giver of death to the giver of life. That's what a Christian is. One who was in prison, hopeless and keyless, but who responded to the one with the key when he said, follow me. Or when he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or when he said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And that rest, that abundant life, begins immediately. But it's partial, kind of. In this life, we can experience it to a certain degree. But, but that life also includes the promise that we will live happily ever after. Now, I know, I know, that sounds like a fairy tale. And it sounds like a fairy tale because all fairy tales are based on it. Fairy tales are, things are bad, things turn good, and they live happily ever after. The only difference is, this one is true. That's what we remember and celebrate every Sunday morning when we come to this table. Things were bad. We were in prison. Things turned good. Jesus unlocked that prison with the key of life. And now we will live happily ever after. All because of one man. Loved ones, and that's not a cliche we use from up here. We, we love you, all of us who are in leadership here. Loved ones, we are followers of that one man, Jesus Christ. That's what our name, Christian, means. Let's wear it with humility. We don't wear it in strut. Uh, we don't wear it and condemn. We don't wear it and burn down clinics. We don't wear it and write off those different from us. Keller says, so loved that we don't despair when we do wrong, but so sinful that we have no right to be puffed up when we do right. 
We wear the name with humility. We wear it with honor. We wear it with gratitude. We wear it with joy. And we wear it well because it identifies us. And it reminds us of who we are and who we follow. One 87-year-old Polycarp, the second century bishop of Smyrna, was burned at the stake. His last words were, I am a Christian. Beloved, that name says it all. And you know, when worn well, it really looks good on us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, you came to the prison door and unlocked it. And you gave us life instead of death. And you gave us a name that says it all. A Christian, a Christian. Because at the root of our life, we are followers of your son, Jesus Christ. Where that is not true of us in our life, Lord, would you, by your grace, make that true? Make us proud of that name. Make us bold wearing that name. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen. So if you are a Christian here this morning, this, this table is for you. If not, um, this can be the morning that becomes for you. If you sense Jesus saying to you, come, follow me. Come, uh, I will give you rest. Come to me, I will give you life abundantly. If, you, if you're sensing that this morning, don't do that. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you as my Savior and my Lord. And if that's true of you, you say that this morning, come with the rest of us and enjoy this meal as a remembrance of who we are because of what Jesus Christ did. Would you come?